0: You're probably familiar with the name John Newton. Uh, He's most well known for his hymn, Amazing Grace. A beloved hymn of the church and of others as well. Uh, John Newton was born in 1725 in England. Uh, The Lord gave him a mother uh, who knew the Lord and for the first six years of John Newton's life, uh, taught him the things of God. Uh, However, uh, when John was about to turn seven, uh, the Lord took his mother home to be with him. Now, John's father uh, was irreligious. Uh, John did not receive any training in the things of God from his father. In fact, his father was a sea captain and so often was Away. John Newton, as he grew up uh, without his, his mother, uh, he began to live a very sinful, godless, rebellious life. He became a, a sailor at a young age. His father, at the age of 11, uh, began taking with him with him on his voyages. Uh, But then uh, he ended up becoming a sailor on several different ships and and lived the sort of life that sailors of that time are known for. Uh, Of himself, he later wrote, I was capable of anything. I had not the least fear of God before my eyes, nor, so far as I remember, the least sensibility of conscience. He lived as a vile blasphemer. And he ended up becoming a slave trader. The Lord intervened in John Newton's life. The Lord had miraculously, in his providence, had spared John Newton's life on several occasions. And John recognized uh, that, that that was the hand of God. And then, on a voyage going back towards England, uh, the the ship entered into a very violent storm. A storm that would make the sailors wonder if they would lose their lives in that storm. Uh, John Newton was assigned to the pumps to, to pump the water out of the ship, hopefully faster than it's coming in. And as he began to work on the pumps, he heard himself say, If this will not do, the Lord have mercy upon us. And that was the first time that he had expressed the need for God's mercy in many, many years. More than a day later, after working so hard against the storm, John Newton describes later, he says, I thought I saw the hand of God displayed in our favor. As they were surviving the storm and the storm began to cease, I thought I saw the hand of God displayed in our favor. I began to pray. I could not utter the prayer of faith. I could not draw near to a reconciled God and call Him Father. The comfortless principles of infidelity were deeply riveted. The great question now was how to obtain faith. John Newton on that ship found a Bible. He began to read the Bible. And he got help from Luke 11.13, which promises the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And he reasoned, he narrates this quote, he reasoned, if this book be true, the promise in this passage must be true likewise. I have need of that very Spirit by which the whole was written in order to understand it aright. He has engaged here to give that Spirit to those who ask, I must therefore pray for it, and if it be of God, He will make good on His own word. He asked for the Holy Spirit. He spent the rest of that voyage in deep seriousness as He read and prayed over the Scriptures. And He writes again, Thus far I was answered that before we arrived in Ireland, I had a satisfactory evidence in my own mind of the truth of the gospel as considered in itself and of its exact suitableness to answer all my needs. I stood in need of an almighty Savior, and such a one I found described in the New Testament. Thus far, the Lord had wrought a marvelous thing. I was no longer an infidel. I heartily renounced my former profaneness and had taken up some right notions, was seriously disposed and sincerely touched with a sense of the undeserved mercy I had received in being brought safe through so many dangers. I was sorry for my past misspent life and purposed an immediate reformation. I was quite freed from the habit of swearing, which seemed to have been as deeply rooted in me as a second nature. Thus, to all appearance, I was a new man. Though he does write that he wasn't fully convinced that at that point he was fully converted, as the desires within him had not yet been transformed to the way that they would be transformed later on as the Lord would continue to work in his heart through the gospel. The Lord clearly saved John Newton. And the Lord soon called John Newton uh, into the pastoral ministry. And John Newton uh, served as a faithful pastor in two churches, uh, one outside London and then one closer to, to uh, London. Uh, during that time, he wrote many hymns. So we, we sing some of them in our services, including the most famous Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, But now, I see, was lost, but had been found. I messed that up, but you know it. (laughs) To the day that he died, he never ceased to be amazed that as he says at age 72, quote, "...such a wretch should not only be spared and pardoned, but reserved to the honor of preaching thy gospel, which he had blasphemed and renounced." This is wonderful indeed. The more thou hast exalted me, the more I ought to abase myself. Now it is not only John Newton, but it's every Christian who can say, "I am no longer the person I was once when I lived in sin, for I have been saved by grace." We come in our study of First Corinthians to a great statement of this truth. Which, as we will see, is a key truth to understand as we live the Christian life. I'm going to read to us 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. Please stand in honor of the Word of God. <laughs> Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality... Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. We see in this passage two fundamental gospel truths that must affect the way that you live as a Christian. The first is that repentance is necessary for inheriting the kingdom of God. Repentance is necessary for inheriting the kingdom of God. Look closely with me at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The Apostle Paul here is bringing up a fundamental truth, a truth that the Corinthians should already know, but is not affecting their lives as it ought. He asks, do you not know this, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You should know this, but you're not acting like you do know it. Now what Paul states regards the unrighteous, You you see that term there in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This term was used back in verse 1. Look back at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The unrighteous uh, here are unbelievers. Unbelievers are called here the unrighteous. And they stand in contrast to the saints. He's standing in contrast to believers. Now, the verb form of this noun, the unrighteous, was used in verse 8. Look at verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And that's that word wrong. You wrong your brothers. That's the verb form of the noun, the unrighteous, in verse 9. Verse 9 could be translated, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? He just said, But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Verse 9, Or do you not know that, the wrong, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? So the term is closely connected with verse 8. Paul says in verse 9, Do not be deceived. You see, it's easy to be self-deceived. Telling yourself that the way you are living is okay. Or or, or telling yourself that your soul is not in danger. But Paul says here in verse 9, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus taught something about inheriting the kingdom of God. I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 25 to see what Jesus said about inheriting the kingdom of God. Matthew 25. This is where Jesus speaks of the sheep and the goats that will be separated when Christ comes in the future. Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31. We're seeking to understand this concept of inheriting the kingdom of God. Verse 31. When the Son of Man, that's Christ, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that will happen in the future, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left, on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So here we have the same uh, terms that we find in our text of inheriting the kingdom. The King, that is, Jesus Christ, will say to the sheep, uh, to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, I want you to observe another term that Jesus uses in this passage for those who will inherit the kingdom of God. Go down to verse 37. 37, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? Jesus calls the sheep the righteous in verse 37. It is the righteous who will inherit the kingdom of God prepared since the foundation of the world. Now what will happen to the goats? The sheep... That is, the righteous will inherit the kingdom. What will happen to the goats? Look at verse 41. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So, Jesus, in this passage, is talking about eternal destinations. One eternal destination is the kingdom of God. The other eternal destination is the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now Jesus contrasts these two eternal destinations in verse 46. Go down to 46. Jesus says, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So those who will inherit the kingdom, it can also be said that they will enter into eternal life. These are eternal destinations. To inherit the kingdom of God means to enter the eternal destination called here eternal life. So let's come back to our text, come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. With that in mind, Jesus is talking about an eternal destination 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Rather, they will suffer, as Jesus put it, the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Paul says to people who have professed faith in Christ, but are wronging their brothers in Christ, even to the point of being taken to court, do you not know? That wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. And then Paul gives a list of categories of the unrighteous. The last in the list is swindlers, uh, which could have been the wrongdoing for which some of the church members were being taken to court by other church members. From verse 8, Paul says, Why do you wrong and defraud Defraud is another word for swindling. Why do you wrong and defraud your brothers? Then, Paul gives a... As he continues on through these categories... Or, I'm sorry. He has this list of categories. That last one, swindlers, connects with what he spoke about in verses 1 through 8, uh, with taking the brother to court. Why do you wrong and defraud your brother? Now, the first... Category of the unrighteous that, that Paul gives us in our text is the sexually immoral. And this connects to what he will say in verses 12 through 20 as, as, as he will uh, rebuke a sexual immorality that was occurring um, in the lives of some of those in the church at Corinth and, and he will teach, flee from sexual immorality. Right. In verses 9 through 10, Paul paints in broad strokes, listing various sins that were common in the city of Corinth. All these sins that he lists were likely in the biographies of the Corinthian church members. All these sins were likely in the past lives of members of the church in Corinth. Just as most, if not all, of these sins are in the biographies of our church members. However, to be precise, verses 9 through 10 do not list sins, but they list categories of the unrighteous, like idolaters, adulterers, and thieves. Being guilty of idolatry makes you an idolater. Being guilty of adultery makes you an adulterer. Being guilty of theft makes you a thief. Let's go through the list one by one. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. Sexual immorality is any sexual relations that are contrary to God's law. God created sex for marriage and only for marriage. It is good in marriage. It is a gift from God to be enjoyed in marriage. When engaged in rightly and intimately bonds a husband and wife. Sexual immorality is any sexual relations outside the marriage relationship. God requires us to love Him by keeping ourselves sexually pure. But when we instead commit sexual immorality, we pervert sex. We pervert what God has made. The next category of the unrighteous is idolaters. Idolatry is the worship of a false god, or the worship of the true God in a way contrary to His law. The God of the Bible is the one true God, and He is to be worshipped exclusively with our whole being. To worship any other God is idolatry, and amounts to cosmic disloyalty, and provokes God's jealousy. The third category here is adulterers. Sexual relations between someone who is married and someone other than their spouse is adultery. Jesus also taught that unlawful divorce and remarriage is adultery. God instituted and regulates marriage and therefore marriage is sacred. He requires a married person to hold fast to their spouse. Like we read in Genesis 2, 24. That instruction, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. God requires a married person uh, to be faithful to their spouse. Committing adultery defiles the marriage. It defiles what is sacred. And it amounts to treachery against the spouse by being one flesh with another. The next category of the unrighteous is men who practice homosexuality. Homosexuality is sexual relations between people of the same sex. Paul speaks here of male homosexuality, but Romans 1 that we looked at last week makes clear that female homosexuality is also sinful. As we saw last week in Romans 1, homosexuality is a rejection of God's order and design, which he called very good in Genesis 1. The next category of the unrighteous that Paul lists here is thieves. Now, theft can take many different forms. It can take the form of shoplifting. It can take the form of failing to return something that you borrowed. It can take the form of copyright infringement, you know, pirating movies, pirating music, and so forth. It can take many different forms. The the world and everything in it belongs to God. All of another person's money and possessions have been sovereignly entrusted to them by God. Which means that their money and their possessions are sacred. When we steal, we steal something that ultimately belongs to God. Rather than stealing, God requires us to protect the property of others. He requires us to work. He requires us to give generously to those in need. Just the opposite of theft. The next category here of the unrighteous is the greedy. Greed is the opposite of contentment and generosity. We are to be content with God and what He has given us. We are to be generous with what He has entrusted to us. But when we are greedy, we are saying that God and His gifts are not enough for us. The next category is drunkards. When a person gets drunk, they cannot think clearly, they cannot exercise self-control, they lose self-control. Rather than getting drunk, God requires us to be sober and self-controlled. The next category is revilers. Reviling includes all forms of verbal abuse, including maligning another person with your words, reviling them with your words, uh, slandering them with your words to another person, Rather than reviling, what are we to do? We are to speak in love. We're to speak words that are seasoned with grace. The last category here is swindlers. Swindling is cheating someone out of money or property, it is synonymous with defrauding someone, a term that we already saw was used in verse 8. Now, what is Paul saying here in verses 9 through 10? After rebuking some in the church in verse 8 for wrongdoing and defrauding their brothers, and before rebuking others in the church in the following verses for sexual immorality, the apostle warns in verses 9 and 10 that those who are guilty of such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He warns that unless a person who does these things repents of these things, he will not go to heaven. But he will suffer God's eternal punishment. Now we see the same thing in other passages. I want to show you two. Turn over to John three. The Gospel of John chapter three. We're going to look at verse 36. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son, that's in Christ, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. When you are saved, you are saved from the wrath of God. Jesus, or what it says here, is whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. They're saved from God's wrath. They receive eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on Him. What we see here in this verse is that saving faith in Christ goes hand in hand with turning from sin to the Son in order to obey Him. That saving faith in the Son goes hand in hand with repentance. Repentance. <coughs> Turn over to the second passage, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 19. Galatians chapter 5 verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident... Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So just as the list that we saw in 1 Corinthians 6 was not an exhaustive list of the unrighteous, so this list of the the works of the flesh is not an exhaustive list. He says, And things like these, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He speaks these words to those who professed faith in Jesus Christ in the Galatian church. And he says, I warn you, that those who do these things, that those who do the works of the flesh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, such things must be repented of. Coming back to 1 Corinthians 6, our text gives a strict warning. No matter how knowledgeable you may be in the Scriptures, no matter how zealous you may be in professing the truths of God, No matter how diligent you may be in church involvement, in Bible reading, in prayer and good works, unless you repent of your sins, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, do not misunderstand this to mean that we are saved by good works. The Bible teaches just the opposite. Romans 4 verse 5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. The heart of the the gospel is the good news of what God has done to save sinners. That God justifies the ungodly who believe in the Son. When you are saved, you are ungodly. You are living in ungodliness and though you are ungodly, God by grace, when you believe in Christ, declares you to be the opposite of, un- of ungodly. He declares you to be righteous. He gives you who are ungodly a right standing with Him that's not based on anything that you have done or will do. It is based on the work of Christ. And so faith, through faith in Christ, by grace... We who are ungodly are declared righteous by God. This is salvation, where God brings us into right relationship with Him. So, do not misunderstand our text, our text which teaches that, that you must repent of your sins in order to inherit the kingdom of God. Do not misunderstand this to be teaching salvation by works. It's just the opposite. Of that what our text means is that saving faith entails conversion having apprehended the utter sinfulness of your sin turning from your sin with a holy hatred of it unto Christ for salvation from your sin to then walk in new loving obedience unto Christ that's conversion And saving faith entails conversion. And if you have been truly converted to Christ, then you will not be okay with sin in your life. Rather, you will seek to put sin to death. Though you may fall into grievous sin as a Christian, you will be convicted of it by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, you will confess it as sin and you will fight against it. Let me ask you, is there a sin that you have been treasuring in your heart? Is there a sin that you have been unwilling to repent of? Is there a sin that has a hold on your heart? Perhaps others know about it because it is hurting them. Or perhaps no one else in this world knows about it But you know, and God knows. Perhaps you have asked God many times to forgive you, but in your heart you have refused to forsake it. Perhaps it is hardening your heart toward God as you hold on to it. Perhaps it is destroying your relationships, but you foolishly continue to harbor this sin in your heart. If so, know that the Holy Spirit is calling you through this passage of Scripture to truly repent. To hate your sin and completely forsake it in your heart and mind and turn to Christ to submit entirely to Him, looking to Him for the grace to walk in new obedience to Him. You would be foolish to now harden your heart against this conviction of the Holy Spirit. Our text of Holy Scripture warns you that if you refuse to repent, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Take this warning seriously. The Holy Spirit uses such warnings to preserve the children of God, He uses such warnings to to, to turn the true children of God to Christ in repentance. Take this warning seriously. Do not quench the Spirit as He calls you to repentance this day. Now when the Apostle Paul writes this, does he think that these members of the Corinthian church are not saved? He's talked in verse 8 about those who are wronging and defrauding their brothers. He's going to address sexual immorality in the next section because it was going on. When Paul writes these words, does he think that these members of the Corinthian church are not saved? No. He believes they are saved, as the next verse shows. He expects that they will heed his warning and show themselves to be saved in repenting of their sin. And so he exhorts them accordingly. In the second half of our text, we see a second fundamental gospel truth that must affect the way that you live as a Christian. And the second truth is that the believer is a new creation in Christ. The believer is a new creation in Christ. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 6 at verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The New American Standard is more literal and word for word here. Listen to the New American Standard. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. That word, but, occurring three times, making a very strong contrast. Such were some of you, but... You were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. Though these sins that Paul has brought up in this passage still surface in your Christian life, you are no longer who you once were before Christ saved you when you were living in sin. You may have been an idolater, but you are no longer that Now that you are in Christ. You may have been an adulterer but you are no longer now that you have been saved. You may have been a homosexual but you are no longer now that you have been washed. You may have been a thief but you are no longer now that you have been sanctified. You may have been a drunkard but you are no longer now that you have been justified. You may have been a reviler but you are no longer. What has changed you and made you new? It's God's saving work. Notice that in the text. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's an act of God that has changed you. It's an act of God in salvation that has made you new. It's His saving work. We see here that when you first repented of your sin and believed in Christ, you were washed. We read of this also in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, which says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. When you were regenerated, God washed you. We read in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall shall become like wool. Think of how bleach will make something absolutely pure. No matter how heinous and grievous your sins. When God saved you, He washed away all of your guilt with the blood of Christ. In other words, He forgave you of all of your sin, past, present, and future. When God saved you, He washed you completely. It's not that He washed part of you. He washed you completely. He cleansed you. That's the first thing that Paul says that God has done. But you were washed. Secondly, secondly he says that when you repented of your sins and believed in Christ, you were sanctified. To be sanctified means to be made holy. To be set apart from the world and sin unto God for His service. When God saved you, He sanctified you, which entailed setting you free from sin's dominion setting you free from sin's power, and consecrating you unto Himself and His service, all so that you would no longer serve sin, but would serve God and Him alone. So you would no longer walk in the sins that were spoken of in verses 9-10, through but instead you would serve God and Him alone. You were sanctified. And thirdly, when you first repented of your sin and believed in Christ... You were justified, our text says. God is the judge of all the world. And you and I had been under His righteous and just condemnation. But when God saved you, He as the judge declared you righteous by His grace. On the basis of Christ's substitutionary death for you. In which Christ paid the penalty for your sin." When God justified you by grace, He imputed Christ's perfect righteousness to you. Meaning that He counted Christ's righteousness as yours. God changed your legal standing from guilty and condemned to righteous. Not because of anything that you did, but because of what Christ did for you. Received through faith in Christ. Through faith in Christ, you were justified by God's grace. Now our text says to believers, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. All of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So what we see here in verse 11 is our salvation was a Trinitarian work. Who did the the justifying? Who did the sanctifying? Who did the washing? It was God the Father. That's implied here. And God the Father did this In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So we have Father, we have Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have the Holy Spirit. Our salvation was a Trinitarian work. God the Father did all three in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, His name represents Him. This is throughout, throughout Scripture, God's name represents Him. So essentially, it, it means in the Lord Jesus Christ. In His name basically means in Him. All right. So you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning, by virtue of union with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, He obeyed the law of God on our behalf. You know, God the Son became a man. He was born under the law. And He obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf. And then he, he died in our place there at the cross, suffering the penalty that was due us for our sin. And then He was raised from the dead for our justification. When we were united to Christ through faith, all He achieved for us became ours. We were justified we were sanctified we were washed all he achieved for us became ours when we were united to him when we believed in his name we were washed in his name sanctified in his name justified in his name and Paul says all of this by the spirit of our God when we believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ it was the Holy Spirit who applied to our soul the finished work of Christ as He came to indwell us. God did not save us from a distance. He sent His Spirit to us, who has come to indwell us. And the Spirit who now indwells us, He has applied to our soul the finished work of Christ. It's a Trinitarian work. Orchestrated by God the Father, achieved by the Lord Jesus Christ, and carried out by the Holy Spirit upon our soul. Because of what the Trinity has done in saving us, we are new creations in Christ. Paul is teaching that here, but he doesn't use that terminology, but he does use that terminology in 2 Corinthians. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to look at verse 17. Second Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 17. This verse is a key verse to memorize. I don't think any of us have the capacity to memorize all of the Bible, so we have to pick which verses we will memorize. This would be an excellent one to memorize. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's what Paul is teaching in our text. (laughs) If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's not that we somehow recreated ourselves. It's God. Recreated us. All right. We are God's work. He has, made, he has made us a new creation. He has washed us. He has sanctified us. He has justified us. And all of this amounts to being made a new creation in Christ. Paul says, the old passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's not that you know, you're, you're, you're like an apple tree that's bearing bad apples and someone's come along and they've taken off the bad apples and they've tied on good apples. No. That's the world's idea of moral transformation. They don't address the heart. They don't address the nature. The biblical gospel affects the whole person from the inside out. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new person. Creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are no longer who you once were. Now, consequently, Scripture can talk about our old self and our new self. Romans 6.6, the Apostle Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It's very important, as believers, we stay mindful of this. That our old self was crucified with Christ. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That old self was crucified with Christ. Put to death upon the cross. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9b and 10 Colossians three nine B and ten. You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then Ephesians four twenty through twenty four. Ephesians four twenty through twenty four. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Repeatedly we see, because of what God has done in saving us, now there's an old self and there's a new self. What the Apostle says in our text, in 1 Corinthians 6.11 is, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What's the implied exhortation in these words? Why is Paul saying this? The implied exhortation in our text is now live accordingly. You're no longer what you once were when you lived in sin you've been washed you've been sanctified you've been justified now live accordingly stop living in the old unrighteous ways and live now in a holy and righteous manner that's the implied exhortation here in verse 11 so when you are tempted brothers and sisters Or when you start to sin, say to yourself, How can I do that? How can I continue in that? That is part of who I once was, but am no longer. I am now clean. I am now a saint. I am now righteous in God's sight. I am no longer on the way to hell, but I am now on the way to heaven. How could I continue in my old sins? That's what Paul wants us to think When we're tempted, that's what he wants us to think when we're starting to sin. When the apostle confronts sin in the lives of believers, he does not just say, knock it off. Other moral systems do. Sadly, that's all some parents say to their children. Rather, he seeks to renew their minds, often with gospel truths, that they may be transformed from the inside out. Our fundamental problem as Christians is not that we do not try hard enough. Our fundamental problem as Christians is that often we still think in the old ways rather than in the new way, the way of the gospel of Christ. I told you earlier about John Newton. In his old age, when he could no longer see to read, he heard someone recite this verse. 1 Corinthians 15.10 By the grace of God, I am what I am. He remained silent a short time and then he said these words. I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I might be, considering my privileges and opportunities. I am not what I wish to be. God knows my heart, knows I wish to be like Him. I am not what I hope to be. Before long I will drop this clay tabernacle to be like Him and see Him as He is. Yet I am not once what I once was, a child of sin and slave of the devil. Though not all these, not what I ought to be, not what I might be, not what I wish or hope to be, and not what I once was, I think I can truly say with the Apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Newton went home to be with the Lord at the age of 82. And before his death, he wrote the following inscription for his tombstone. Quote, John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith He had long labored to destroy. Once an infidel, once a libertine, but God saved him. Have you been saved by God's amazing grace? It's possible that this morning, as we have been looking at this passage, which has brought up categories of of sin, categories of the unrighteous, it's possible that you have been convicted of your sin against God, but that you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Perhaps today the Holy Spirit has been working in your heart so that He's been opening your eyes to the truth the Scriptures teach, that the wages of sin is death, and that. Apart from being saved by Christ, we are under God's eternal condemnation and and judgment and wrath. And that we need to be saved. And that there's only one who can save us. That's the one who went to the cross 2,000 years ago. And whose tomb was vacated on the third day. You need to understand what the Bibles teach that God is holy, He is righteous, He is just. He has given us His law, but all of us have broken His law. His law does not give us a way to make ourselves right with God. Rather, the law of God shows us that we are a sinner in need of salvation. And God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. You can't save yourself from the penalty of your sin. You can't save yourself from the power that sin has over your life. But what we cannot do for ourselves, God has done for sinners. In that God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. Who who became man, who became human. So He's 100% human and 100% God in one person. And He lived a perfect life of obedience to God the Father. He lived under the law and obedience to the law. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And He, the Righteous One and Holy One, He laid down His life voluntarily at, at the cross. He didn't die there for for His his own sins. He had none. Whose sins did He die for? He died for the sins of all those whom God chose by grace. Chosen His mercy. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Jesus laid down His life as, as, as the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. He laid down his life as a propitiation, a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. There at the cross, he reconciled us to God. He dealt with the enmity between us and God which was our sin, which broke fellowship between us and God. He dealt with it there at the cross. And having paid for our sin upon the cross, he said, "It is finished." The work of atonement completes. He breathed his last, giving up his spirits. His body was buried. On the third day, His body was raised. And Jesus appeared alive to over 500 of His disciples over the course of 40 days, showing that He was indeed alive. They'd been raised from the dead and was therefore clearly the promised Christ, the promised Savior, King of kings and Lord of lords, who will come again to judge the living and the dead. And Jesus Sent for the gospel, which calls upon all men, women, boys, and girls to repent of your sin, to confess your sin to God, to forsake your sin, to turn from your sin to Christ, hating your sin because of the offense that it is to a God who is worthy of the highest worship and and your complete obedience. The gospel calls you to repent of your sin, to have a, a godly sorrow over your sin A true change of mind, a true change of heart about your sin. Forsaking your sin, turning to Jesus. Believing in Him as God who became man. Believing in Him as the promised Savior. Believing in Him as as, as your Savior who died upon the cross for your sins. Submitting your life to Him, to follow Him as your Lord, to follow Him as your Master the rest of your days. The gospel calls upon us to repent of our sin, to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and the gospel promises that you will be saved if you repent and believe on Christ. If you have not been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not been washed, if you have not been sanctified, if you have not been justified, I urge you, come to Christ today in repentance. Come to Christ today in faith. And God will wash away the guilt of all your sin. He will sanctify you, setting you apart from sin, setting you free from the power that sin has had over your life, setting you apart from sin to now live for Christ, to serve God. And He will justify you, declaring you righteous by grace, giving you a right standing with Him that is not of your works, but is of Christ's work. His Spirit will take up residence within you. And He will begin to change you and to transform you. And one day, when Jesus comes again, you will be like Him because you will see Him as He is and you will be with Him forever. And if you do know Jesus as Lord and Savior, be affected by what we just saw today. Don't listen to the warning that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God and just say, praise God, I'm not among the unrighteous examine your heart examine your life those words are spoken to those who profess faith in Christ but were living in sin examine your life are you living in sin are you living in rebellion against God if so, let this be a wake up call Those who do not repent of their sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so, we need to be quick to repent in light of what the scriptures teach. So, we examine ourselves, see, are we living in sin? If so, we repent. Secondly, Paul has told us that we're not who we were when we lived in sin. We are new in Christ. Washed, sanctified, justified. So stop living in sin. So start living truly in righteousness and holiness. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind with the gospel truth. Truth. Don't try to become like Jesus, just by trying harder. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing means nothing. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. These are not just doctrinal truths that we understand and then we move beyond. I've been washed, sanctified, justified. Great, let's move on. No. These are truths that should be precious to us every moment of every day. Because this has to do with our, our new identity in Christ. This is who we are in Christ. And we have to be mindful of who we are in Christ if we're going to live for Christ. And so let us put these verses to memory. Let us review these verses regularly. Let us preach these verses to our soul. And let us minister these verses to others. For God's eternal glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. You are a great Savior. You, O oh God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are the only Savior, there is no other. We thank you for your marvelous salvation. And we say along with John Newton, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. The saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I've been found. I once was blind, but now I see. Oh Lord. May we be transformed to be more like Jesus as we treasure these truths about what you have done in our salvation. And Lord, having our minds renewed, may we walk in a growing holiness and righteousness. For you chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. Enable us to walk appropriately as those who are washed, sanctified, and justified. Unto your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.